3: Hello, you're listening to Time's Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, still in for Matt Chorley as he crosses the Atlantic at a snail's pace. Very busy show for you today. We, of course, brought you PMQ's Unpacked and Disunited Kingdom. But first, time for our columnist panel. It was a cracker today with Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton. Don't go anywhere. The Columnists with Alibert. Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. Yes, already heard from Robert this morning. Morning, Robert. Morning, Patrick. I spoke to you without introducing you. Very rude of me. That's and right. Alice Thompson. Morning, I, Alice.
4: I think it's going to be Nick Clegg, can I just say, because it can't be the Tories or Labour. Uh, it's not Nick Clegg either, uh,
3: I'm afraid. No. It's not Nick yeah, Clegg he's younger either. younger than that, isn't he? he, he oh, uh... he's born in 1967, isn't he? He is. Ben well, Cameron. So we've already be. ruled out, we've already, yeah, look, you know, love a bit of live-action guest here. Love a bit of live-action guest here. Uh, we won't play the no, no, no. We won't be that cruel. Anyway, lots to discuss this morning with you guys. Uh, let's start on Strep A. Uh, the Health Secretary has been on Times Radio this morning. He said he's been reassured there's a good supply of penicillin. But he said some GPs might have shortages while stock is moved around. Alice, what do you think about this? The good news seems to be the outbreak is relatively small but ministers have got a job to do to stop parents from panicking.
4: Well, that's the problem. Is I have already looked at all the symptoms. I now know them off by heart, all the strawberry tongue and the rashes and the sore throat, just because if you've got a lot of children, uh, you're immediately worried it's going to be one of them. But actually, it, it's a very low risk still. And my problem is that if we all start taking antibiotics, then it's going to be a real problem because we've been spending, you know, the last few years telling everyone to stop taking antibiotics for sore throat. So I think we have got to be really, really careful not to overdo it and not to pull children out of school and to try and keep going and just be kind of sane, but do work out, you know, what what the symptoms are so you know if there's a real problem. And then you hope there's either an ambulance or you can get your child to hospital, I'm assuming. Well,
3: yeah, I mean... Probably a forlorn hope, hoping there's an ambulance at this point. Uh, Robert, GPs have urged parents who think their children might have strep A to stop trying to get appointments for their kids. Your kids are, thankfully, uh, too old to be uh, at the thick end of this, but do you understand understand that advice?
5: No. No, if you're a parent, obviously you want to get an appointment with your GP, and then what will happen is they'll just go to the nearest hospital, won't they, which is what people do, which is why A&E's are clogged up. Uh, I don't understand what's happening with GPs quite... Uh, in a, in a whole number of ways since during and since the pandemic, uh, I can take Alice's point, but if it's your if it's your kid, you're going to want to. or If they're vulnerable, if there's somebody in their class or their their year, I think they're only proposing to to, to do it for the, the uh, an infected child's mm. year group. Then you're going to want to get the antibiotic. I mean, reading that, that heartbreaking story of the little girl in Belfast this morning, uh, you can't possibly say who's going to stand up and say to parents. Uh, we're not really giving you antibiotics because of some uh, something that might happen down the road in terms of building up uh, resistance. Mm. You don't well, you don't you don't care about that, do you? You just want to you, you want that remedy right then.
3: And, and Alice, do you think the government has got its messaging clear enough on this?
4: Yeah, I think it's very difficult for the government post-pandemic because people are much more nervous naturally. We now know what can go horribly wrong. So I think they have been quite clear. I think they've got out the message of, of what what you need to look for. And the problem for them is that it all, it's all the, the other enough drugs are there not. That's the problem. That's what they've got to look at and make sure the supply chain is there. They also need to sort out the NHS because at the moment, <laughs> if you can't get an ambulance and you can't get to A&E, that's yeah. their real crisis. That's what I want them to I look mean, at. and We can sort out the rest of it.
5: And we're going to see, I suppose, with the antibiotics, We're going to see what we've seen in in other aspects of the NHS. We're going to see huge regional and local variations where some of the GPs, the efficient ones, will will have big stocks and and some the ones that perform badly, often just sort of next door with the same kind of economic social profile perform really badly. They, They probably may not have the stocks that they need.
3: And Alice, it's, it's, a t- it's
5: almost a, the worst possible time of any year for this to be happening, given mm-hmm. all the other
3: strains and stresses on the NHS and the industrial action and all of the rest of it.
4: Well, it's the industrial action that's really going to panic people because it's the nurses and the ambulances and the paramedics. You're just, you have that absolute, I think the greatest fear of a parent is being with a child at home who's very ill and not being able to do anything and going to A&E and then queuing up and not being able to get in yeah. or calling an ambulance. And it's the same for the elderly. Um, I always think that kind of the people in the middle are sort of fine normally. It's the very old and the very young that panic most when you get this, particularly over Christmas, when there's just shortage of everything. And yeah, December the 21st
5: you, you, is, the bad, is the big day, isn't it? I mean,
4: yeah, we're mm. just terrified, I think, that, that actually you're going to be with this child dying at home and there's nothing you can do. And I think... That's what we've, we've got to sort of, we've got to reassure parents. And that um, is
5: how people died, isn't it, in the years, in the, the, not so long ago, before the NHS, before the ambulance service. You, I mean, you, you would have been saved by getting to a hospital or a doctor and, and they, they weren't available, you couldn't get there. And, yeah.
3: no, Yeah, well, there's lots of, obviously, a big challenge for for the Health Secretary and the NHS, uh, which obviously we'll be uh, keeping a close eye on here on Times Radio. Uh, Let's move on to something a bit lighter, (laughs) shall we? Uh, Nice report on page three of the Times, um, a million miles away from uh, strep A and GP surgery. Um, Famous authors have been sharing their stories of book signings when nobody turns (laughs) up. Uh, Chelsea Banning, a librarian who'd been working on her debut novel for 15 years, had an author signing and only two people turned up. Authors, uh, luminaries including Margaret Atwood and Stephen King, shared their own horror stories... Um, I believe, uh, between us, we've all had a book published. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm sure th- your, your, yours both did better than mine, I'm sure. Well, no, you know, I was, I was just about to say, thankfully, uh, I don't have any of these stories because my book was published in the middle of the pandemic, um, which spared <laughs> yeah. me having to have a, a, something terrible like a launch party or any signings, uh, which I've exclusively done for family and friends, uh, if they ask or
5: not. Um, any any similar stories, Robert? This wasn't my book. Uh, My book was a collection of columns, and it did and it did predictably badly. When when something is, or people have already read something, and it's all and it's also still available free online. Uh, This was years before that. I was doing a talk about uh, up in Hull, where I'm from, about my uh, my life as a journalist uh, in the Central Library in Hull, and it was me, and my mum and dad, and the librarian, and that was it. That was the attendance. Did you persist with the talk? My mum insisted that I did. My dad wanted to go home and watch Wimbledon. Uh, it, it was the summer and I was up against uh, Wimbledon and Glastonbury, so that was my excuse. And I think the librarian wanted to go, but my mum took the opportunity to question me about precisely what I did for a living. She loved it.
3: All the questions you <laughs> wouldn't answer on the phone when you exactly, did or Exactly. Call. She had
5: thought, I've got an hour's exclusive access to my son and I'm going <laughs> I'm I'm to uh, make it no pay. Mo-
3: no mother is going to turn that down. Alice, have you, uh, you fared
4: any better? Well I've done better this time by doing a joint book because Rachel Sylvester and I can just chat to each other when no one uh, turns up at the <laughs> signing and you get it yeah. we keep being up against incredibly famous we think um, very nice people like Michael Wolpergo, who sends over coffee to our desk um, as we sit there just talking to each <laughs> uh, other or sometimes we go and help people in the queue for him or for whoever else it is but I just think it's a brilliant Twitter story because it's one of the few times when you, it's so worthwhile isn't it I mean it just makes you feel so much better when you get people like Stephen King and yeah. Kate Moss and you know, Margaret Atwood, all sharing their stories. I
5: love the Kate Moss one. The woman says, come on, you've got to sign the Handmaid's Tale. And Kate Moss says, well, I didn't write it. (laughs) Margaret Atwood did. and And the woman said, yeah, but she's not here. Yeah, yeah. There's,
3: there's some there's some brilliant stories. Hugo Rifkin sat between Terry Wogan and Sebastian Fox at a signing. Both sold hundreds. I sold zero. Eventually, Wogan patted my shoulder and said the same had once happened to him. Really? Hugo said gratefully. No, <laughs> Wogan <laughs> replied. Uh, you know, Mark Harris. Six people came to our first reading. One bought four family members. The sixth person came in out of the rain. Uh, you know, there are just loads of people. And also, you know, you say Alice, it's a rare example of Twitter. Uh, you know, a tweet with thousands and thousands of retweets having hundreds of heartwarming replies it's really? also an example of you know nobody who has had a book published or has a blue tick on twitter or who fancies themselves as a well-known journalist wants to admit that people aren't hanging off their every <laughs> of last not. word so you know it's always nice to see you know even uh, some of the most well-known names in the business show I me mean, king's practically the best-selling author ever i
5: think apart from maybe yeah, yeah. yeah Stephen
4: Pot- King's yeah, done Pot- four hundred
5: million books. Yeah, Pot- so, I mean, Pot- J.K. Rowling and fat boys. He says turned up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, 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 looking for Nazi books as well. Yeah, exactly. Stephen
3: <laughs> King uh, was doing a signing for his 1975 novel *Salem's Lot*, uh, which came out after *Carrie*, which was obviously a, a yeah. blockbuster, wasn't it? Yeah. So, um, you know, quite surprising. He said he had one customer, a fat kid, who said, "Hey, bud, do you know where there's some Nazi books?" <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, it happens, to, it happens to everyone. It happens to everyone. I mean, if you, if you if any famous authors listening who have... Uh, uh, any more famous authors than the three of us who have, uh, <laughs> as, as hard as that'll be to come up with, um, uh, who, uh, who have uh, any similar stories, do obviously get in touch. Alice, um, let's move on and talk about your column, shall we? Um, you know, anyone who's heading home to the north. Robert, I, I suppose you're driving to Hull.
5: Uh, we yeah we are yeah because we got you know a big bootload of presents. Oh, yes, yeah. shame. But um, I did have such this, large ass. Yes. <laughs> I did have this. Alice describes the new, having to fly from Newcastle rather than get the train. I had the same thing. I got relatives in Edinburgh, and I'd, lo- I'd always prefer to get the train if possible. I love the train, but the uh, you can't rely on them. And the, the, the plane was you know that quarter of the price.
3: Yeah. So, so Alice, at your column today, um, you argue that the situation with the railways and the strikes is so bad that we need to rethink their structure entirely.
4: Well, that's the problem is it's not just the strikes on 13th, 14th, 16th, 17th, you know, 24th, 25th, 26th, and then into January, 2nd, 3rd, 5th, and 6th. It's the whole railway network that's now just impossible so that whenever you go anywhere – I mean, I went a couple of weeks ago, I went down to the West Country and I go – and there's always an excuse. This time it was like they'd hit a cow. And the, the thing is, the passengers now just don't – they don't even blink anymore. We just all sat there. We were so relieved that we might actually get into the station by midnight and that there wouldn't be a rail replacement bus. Although, actually, I'm quite relieved when there is one now because there's so many times when you just get kicked out in the middle of That's nowhere.
5: True. Rail replacement buses used to be a nightmare. Now you're just you're begging for one. No, they're a treat. Now you're yeah, you're a treat. <laughs> Luxury.
4: <laughs> so it is kind of extraordinary that the railways have just become – I mean, and also, at the end of um, – Uh, British Rail, they were actually quite good. We were one of the best in Europe and then we privatised it and it should have worked and it did work quite well for a bit and now we don't even start comparing ourselves to Japan. We just, you know, we just want to be like British Rail once was and and I don't mind if it's renationalization. I don't mind if it's total privatisation. But What you can't have is this midway where no one takes any responsibility. Mm. So there's no one to shout at. There's no one to, you know, with with the strikes, there's no one to talk about um, the strikes. They don't, no one will take responsibility for them because it's this mishmash of the government you know doling out the money and the rail companies kind of soldering on and then you know you've got network rail and the, you know it's just i mean it is insane that it's, it's all broken up
5: the government's been running lner which is the one i get most along with whole trains uh and it's pretty good mm. it's been, that's been the best it, one yeah now. it's been doing it for four years certainly if you've got to go to uh anywhere east, it's better than having to. Your heart sinks if you've got to go to Manchester or Liverpool. Well, yeah, you know,
3: I remember the the you know not to uh, not to provide Richard Branson free advertising. I remember when I was first, you know spent a lot of the best part of a decade getting the train up from Liverpool down to London um, regularly, and in the past two years or so, it's complete. It used to be a really reliable service. Yeah, Now it's not, and it's part of the reason. You know, as you and Alice both say. Um, that we 're in a sort of mismatch where um, you know companies can be certain no matter how bad their services is, no matter how much money they lose, the government is going to bail them out, and they, they're not they 're insulated despite being private companies who can take dividends when they want uh, from the commercial consequences of providing a terrible service
5: yeah, a bit like the water companies mm. uh, i mean i 'm starting to think and a lot of people are probably starting to think that these should really be in public ownership, you know the, the, the strategic transport and uh, energy should be back in public hands. Even,
3: what, even if that means a Brit- British Rail Sandwich... Well, it doesn't have cordon. to be.
5: That was, that was 30, 40 years ago. I mean... yeah. I, also, the British fran- Rail franchise Sandwich, franchise that was
2: unfair. Out, fr-
5: franchise, out the hospi- the, franchise out the hospitality, privatise that. But uh, the, actual, the actual structure of it and the, the, uh, the rolling stock should be... I think it should be run by the government.
3: Uh, it's the Times Christmas party tonight. Yes, will I see both of you there? Certainly will, yeah. I yeah, always go, yeah. Alice, will you be propping up the bar with Robert later?
4: I will. No, we're, we're quite good at it, aren't we? We're quite a good double act. Robert.
3: Oh, totally, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, I look forward to that. <laughs> um, we're lucky in that we're not... Uh, no strike today, so people will be able to get home uh, if they're not... You know, bundling themselves into <laughs> Ubers at four AM yeah. out of uh, the pool bar that's just uh, just down the road from here. The, uh, the... Oh, that's the
5: sort of like way things traditionally end up, isn't it? Yeah, it
3: is. It is. Anyway, that's quite enough of that. Um, before everybody, uh, before everybody gets sat, uh, Kate Nicholls, CEOs of uh, CEO of UK Hospitality, joins me to talk about offices who won't be uh, so lucky because of the strikes uh, this winter. Uh, morning, Kate.
2: Good morning to you.
3: Um, are lots of people cancelling their parties because of the action announced by Mick Lynch?
2: Well, I think it's a triple whammy, really, that we're seeing. It's not just office Christmas parties and big events, although that is the biggest week of the year for for that activity. It's also people cancelling smaller scale activities where they were coming in or planned to come into town and city centres for family activities, theatres, shopping at that last busy weekend. And it's also commuters and so smaller scale activity that commuters would be involved in. Effectively, you've lost the whole of a travelling week. So yes, we are seeing quite high levels of cancellations across all three of those activities. Uh, some of our venues in town and city centres reporting thirty to forty percent cancellation rates.
3: Um, and can you can you put a number on the economic impact on bars, uh, restaurants, and other venues?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the, our estimate is that for the the, the next week and the, the strikes that are coming later in December um the, the, hit, the hit to hospitality is likely to be 1.5 billion pounds of revenue that won't be made and that's almost the equivalent to the amount we lost during the omicron period this time last year so a really significant hit to a sector that has been devastated by uh, co- coronavirus and the restrictions on trading for the last two years
3: and so would your message to mick lynch be to, to reconsider in the name of the economy
2: well, I think it's to all three parties. There's the government, the unions and the employers. We need all three of them to get a grip, to double down and to try and resolve it or at least suspend this strike action. It's going to be the most devastating and damaging week for our sector. The hospitality businesses, the workers who can't get to work, those who can't earn extra hours because shifts have been cancelled due to cancelled parties. They are the ones that are being collateral damage in all of this. So we need all sides, all three parties to really come together together try and negotiate, compromise and reach a solution.
3: Well, Kate Nicholls, CEO of UK Hospitality, thanks very much uh, for talking us through that on Times Radio this morning. Uh, Robert and Alice, Christmas office parties were disrupted a lot by COVID. Yeah. Times hasn't had one for several years.
5: Well, we had a summer one, didn't we? we did, yes, we did. So we've got to, Yeah, we haven't had one since 2019, I suppose. Then yeah. an
3: important, important part of working life, you know, because I, work for the uh, times in uh... Westminster, seldom see colleagues unless I'm in, in yeah HQ, they are especially often?
5: especially now since the, all the newspapers were dispersed I think when everybody was in Fleet Street which I kind of caught the very tail end of at the beginning of my career uh there was uh, there was that sort of camaraderie you know and now everyone's all over London and people that were or, and in within one single newspaper people working different places uh well, you know working from home remotely so yeah so I think it's a big it's a big factor for uh, esprit de corps yeah do you agree Alice
4: Yeah, well, I think the Christmas party is the one thing in the year that although people always complain about it, once they get to it, you love it, really. And it's also, it's a kind of, it's just a time when everyone can mix together in different age groups. I do feel really sorry after the pandemic for the youngest um, people in the offices, because they often have to carry on working at home even now. And the idea that they can come in, they can talk to more senior people, they can chat. You know, at the beginning of the evening, you're doing a bit of mentoring, and then by the end, everyone is obviously... um, so relaxed yeah. i not even thinking about yeah, work but bones. I think it's great it's quite fun watching everyone <laughs> dancing I don't know I just I think I think it's a really important aspect of the year and you don't yeah. have to go it's not one of those things that you're forced into no. really,
5: that- I admit Lynch needs to be careful his support was was up above 50% in the summer and but it's going down to Below fifty, well below fifty percent. Now you muck around with Christmas at your peril, mm, mm. especially you know
3: not just the not just the parties people are getting home yeah. for uh, getting home for Christmas too. Um, the Times reported yesterday, just on the subject of Christmas parties, that employers are being advised to leave their phones at home so embarrassing images don't end up on social media. Um, I was, I was. Disturbed to see uh, there was a, a disclaimer on our invitation that arrived by email yesterday, saying there will be photography at this event. Oh, really? Almost <laughs> a uh, almost positive I... positive reinforcement to be, to behave ourselves.
5: What they... I always like is they say yeah, you, once we've left the building, we, there will be no readmittance to the, to the Times office because they're obviously worried about people getting drunk, coming back, getting into the stationary cupboard, you know, <laughs> photocopying their bottoms, all that kind of stuff,
3: sleeping under the desk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, wise precautions, you think, Alice?
4: Yeah, well, I think the Times Party sounds like it's kind of slightly more wild than it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think, oh. what
5: it well, I was think like. maybe it's just yeah, a conversation like this really yeah. on repeat. No, no, Alice, because you had those few years when you when you left us for arrival. That, that, yeah. no, no, you the, you the Times Party, better ones, than the
4: Telegraph. Yeah, you missed the you miss wild ones better. then. Yeah.
5: <laughs>
3: Uh, just before I let you go, uh, Robert, let's finish what with what you've been writing about. Uh, talking of, uh, you know, steamy clinches. Yes, uh, Hendo. Uh, goal celebrations, getting less macho uh, in the wake of... Uh, I hope so. It's Jordan like... Bellingham, uh, <laughs> Jude Bellingham and Jordan Henderson. Uh... Yeah,
5: slightly wishful thinking. But uh, Jordan, Hendo, uh, Hendo and Jude on uh, Sunday night. There was a moment, wasn't it? It was a moment. It was like for a couple of seconds, nothing else existed for those two guys. Uh, and I was really hoping they were going to have a kiss because see what see what the is and FIFA made of that. Uh, and if you
3: look, if you're a Liverpool fan, it was great to see them. Well, so yeah, I mean, George Henderson is a
5: is a is a absolute national treasure. He was the guy who got all the Premiership captains together in in COVID to do something for the NHS and. Uh, and he's now obviously mentoring this young this young star incredible player from uh, and it's just a, it was just a lovely scene i mean it may be wishful thinking on my part we have at the other end of the spectrum we've got ronaldo celebrating goals he didn't even score so uh, be, you know, be, but maybe things are getting a little be, bit less of the sort of finger wagging and the yeah, shushing yeah, yeah. and the ear cupping and all I'd that i'd like to
3: see you know be more Hendo, be more Roger Miller, jiving yeah. at the corner flag. Yeah. Long live Jordan Henderson. My dad paints his house. There you go. That's uh, <laughs> excellent. I I need to, need to get that in. Anyway. It was a for- a, a beautiful. Yeah. My d Desmond Maguire's little else. Uh, <laughs> that was Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton there. Remember, you can read their excellent columns in the Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription or pick up a copy of the paper. To do the former, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the Times Red Box. Now it's a Wednesday, so it's time for PMQs and Pat. Tim Shipman from the Sunday Times and I were pausing the action today.
4: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm
0: breeze, relax,
4: and think about
0: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to monday.com.
3: You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this.
5: PMQs unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire.
6: Order, order. I call Patrick Maguire
3: and Tim Shipman. Yes, I'm joined by Tim Shipman, chief political commentator from the Sunday Times, and remember, you can watch us live on YouTube as well as listening to us pause the action on Times Radio. Just head to the Times Radio YouTube channel, and you'll get us pausing the action in real time. Penultimate session of the year for Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. Uh, Tim, do you think Rishi Sunak has will have given up trying to land? Uh, you know the Rishi uh, Jeremy um, Jeremy Corbyn sort of jibes and we'll just want to get through this in one piece?
6: Well he certainly wants to get through it in one piece, you know, his entire political strategy is just get to Christmas and hope that, you know, like the Black Knight that there's still a couple of limbs hanging on (laughs) Um, and his MPs are doing their best to sort of uh, chop them off and Starmer will wave them around in the chamber today and say look at this Um, you know, you're bleeding out mate, but um, yeah um, I think the Corbyn line we haven't heard for a week or two um, and I think... uh, Some evidence that wasn't uh, achieving, wasn't necessarily nailing it. But I think you know, on strikes, that's where you know, if you look at the front page of the papers today, you know, some of the newspapers more friendly to the Conservatives are making this point that Labour is still taking money from uh, people who are um, striking. And you know, there's it's difficult terrain because a lot of these strikes, you know, some of them are more popular than others, Mm. and. you know the broadly speaking the rail strikes the least popular and um i think people have a lot of sympathy for the, the health workers um how the tories kind of pass that and find a kind of place where they can make a political point without sounding churlish um it's difficult but you know they haven't got much else at the moment so
3: and it's interesting listening to steve bartley on the round this morning totally uncompromising on on pay rises for nurses and um, mark harper is the Transport Secretary, probably on firmer ground, isn't he? Uh, Given, as you say, uh, diminishing public sympathy for the rail workers, perhaps particularly given we're heading to Christmas. Well, and
6: now they're deliberately trying to disrupt Christmas, which looks like a bit of a last throw of the dice to try and get, you know, what they want um, uh, on the the money side.
3: Yes. And and do you think Keir Starmer has... um, has nailed his own response to the to the union question, which is obviously one that dogs him, particularly the uh, the rail strikes. You know, his line is uh, the one we heard from Ed Miliband way back when. You know, both sides should get around the table and uh, rediscover the spirit of compromise. Do you think uh, that, that insulates him politically?
6: I don't think it insulates him totally, but it's at least something he can uh, repel uh, some of the in- incoming blows from. And it also, you know, it sort of sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Um, uh, I'd rather suspect it worked better for... Um, uh Starmer than it perhaps did for Miliband, who was under kind of more political pressure, was not out in front, couldn't look like the sort of statesman-like, you know, if I was in charge, mm. everyone would go, well, you're not, mate. Don't be silly. <laughs> um, you know, with uh, with Starmer, you can envisage a day when he might be in charge and, you know, uh, everybody knows the unions and the Labour Party are, you know, uh, come from the same stock. Um, but, you know, Labour leaders who don't immediately sort of side with them are... Uh, you know moderates, and that sounds you know reasonable to a large proportion of the country. I would have thought there's a lot of people out there who won't be persuaded by that, but uh, but maybe they weren't inclined to vote for Labour anyway.
3: Well, let's see how Keir Starmer deals with what Rishi Sunak has to throw back at him by way of comebacks. We can go to that first question from the Labour leader now.
7: Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Can I start by welcoming the new member of Parliament for the City of Chester? Yeah. It is the best result for Labour in the 105 years we have been fighting that seat, and I look forward to working with her to build a better future for the people of Chester. (laughs) Mr Speaker, the Conservative Party promised the country it would build 300,000 houses a year. This week, without asking a single voter, the Prime Minister broke that promise by scrapping mandatory targets. What
1: changed? Yeah. Yeah. Mr. Speaker, let me start by also welcoming the honourable lady to her to her place. Now, the honourable gentleman comes here every week, and I know he's focused on the process and the politics. But I don't think he's actually taken the time to read the detail of what we are doing to improve our planning system. So let me let me just explain what we are doing. We are, Mr. Speaker, we are protecting the green belt. Yeah. Investing millions to develop brownfield sites. And we're providing support and protection for local neighbourhood plans. Just just this morning, the Shadow Housing Secretary said, she said, communities should have control over where homes are built and what sort of homes are built. That's my position, that's her position, what's his position?
3: So, you know, a classic uh, response there from Rishi Sunak to Keir Starmer's question about house building, which, as we predicted, he's trying to make a point about Rishi Sunak's political weakness. Uh, You know, uh, Michael Gove conceding to the rebels that didn't want to uh, have mandatory house building targets apply to councils. And Rishi Sunak
6: saying in response, well, you know, it's all very well and good you critiquing me. But what's your plan? Uh, Well, I mean, on the face of it, that's perfectly reasonable because failing to build houses is a uh, a cross-party pursuit in this country um, and has been for decades. Um, But, um, you know, it's... uh it's hardly taking uh, the wind from Starmer's sails, is it? And, you know, classic Sunak as well. You know, Starmer's getting better at the sort of short, pithy question and Sunak's, I really don't think you understand, old chap. (laughs) What we really need to do is get down into the detail, which is where I'm always happiest. And there aren't many Tory MPs, I don't think, yelling, you know, what do we want? Support for local neighbourhood plans. When do we want them? (laughs) Uh, Never. Um, It's not not particularly stirring stuff liable to... uh, get everybody cheering behind him and heading off for their Christmas break with a song in their hearts but but but, you know
3: it does it does kill a few minutes and and it has for Rishi Sunak's uh,
6: sake killed a rebellion hasn't it so you know he can at least chalk that up as a well Well, that's the politics of it isn't it you can look weak you can look like you're having to do u-turns I mean uh, u-turns are much more toxic in the Westminster village than they are for the public the public Often, when you sit in a focus group, takes the view that well, Well, at least they're doing the right thing. At least they've done the right thing. They're listening to what people said. Blah 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 blah. So it's not sort of um, it's not the end of days doing U turns. But certainly, if you get a reputation for not being able to do anything, because all it takes is thirty of your MPs to get uh, hot under the collar. Mm. Um, and there's always thirty of them liable to get hot under the collar about, about something. anything. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm uh, just looking at some of the comments on the YouTube member. If you're listening at home, why not tune in to the Times Radio YouTube channel and watch us uh, uh, do all of this uh, with our with our beautiful faces attached? Um, I think uh, I think uh, what's very it? generous of you wasn't <laughs> a, wasn't a joke, Tim. Wasn't a joke. Um, yeah, no, people uh, particularly unimpressed. Uh, Matt says not an answer. Uh, waffle. Uh, You know, Mary Williams, yes, you're wrong here, where your constituents are going to live. The Prime Minister has not necessarily convinced uh, our viewers on on YouTube. Uh, Keep your comments coming. Uh, Let's head to Keir Starmer's second question.
7: Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, does he really expect us to believe that the member for Chipping Barton and the member for the Isle of Wight are cheering him on because he's going to build more homes? Pull the other one. I'll tell him him what changed. His backbenchers threatened him, and, as always, the blancmange prime minister wobbled. He did a grubby deal with a handful of his MPs and sold out the aspirations of those who want to own their
1: own home. Was it worth it? The, the, Mr. Speaker, as ever, as ever, engaging in the petty personality politics, not, 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 not focused on the substance. Again, let me explain what we're doing. We're delivering what I said we would do. We're protecting the character of local communities. We're cracking down on land banking and irresponsible developers. And we're giving people a greater say in their decisions. Just this week, Mr. Speaker, just this week, on Monday, the Honourable Gentleman said the government should be giving people more power and control. Now, 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 now he seems to be opposing that policy. It's only Wednesday. I know he flip-flops, but even for him it's pretty quick.
3: Yeah. Key exchange for me there, Tim Shipman, uh, was the was the line from Keir Starmer where he talked about uh, Rishi Sunak failing to understand the, the, the the aspiration of people to own their own homes, and um, that the Tories' failure to build more houses is uh, preventing people from getting on the, under the property ladder. Uh, you know, uh, smart Tories, Robert Colville, columnist in your paper, is one i one that comes to mind. Um, share this view, don't they? But he's
6: very angry about. it. He's this.
3: furious. <laughs> he, you know, there's someone on the comment desk. He's going to have to tell him to write a different column because uh, you know every Sunday he's writing the same column. Well, don't worry because you can read it on Twitter every day as well. <laughs> but you know he has a point, hasn't he? Um, that. You know, if the Tories can't create people who own property and uh, you know have a stake in capitalism, don't be surprised when they t- look to the left for uh, another uh, another option.
6: Well, quite, and this is a f- fascinating role reversal. You know, I mean, you've got a Labour um, leader chucking aspiration at a Tory leader. Mm. Um, you know, when Rishi Sunak was in trouble a week or two ago, all he did was to yell aspiration, aspiration, aspiration about private schools as it happened at the time. Um, so, you know, Starmer is uh, stealing some. Tory lines as well as some clothes. Um, uh, We've had a bizarre transformation here, haven't we? I mean, six months ago, we had this sort of uh, bloke who made up slightly weird names and talked loosely about stuff um, uh, standing on one side of the dispatch box and on the other, there was this quite studious... Person who was interested in the detail and wanted to be very precise about everything, and that fellow used to be Keir Starmer, <laughs> and now it's Rishi Sunak, and the bloke coming up with names like Mister Blamot, the Blamond PM, is Mister Starmer rather than Boris Johnson, and it's sort of a, a kind of weird role reversal. I'm not sure the Blamond PM is going to
3: is going to catch on down the dog. Uh, my,
6: my question for you though, Tim, is: Do you think that
3: works for Keir Starmer? Do you think um, because uh, you know he's definitely improved as a parliamentary performer, partly because his operation has sharpened quite considerably? Um, in recent times do, do you think this works for though this uh do you think there's something in rishi sunat you know uh, complaining that he is uh going for personality do you think it's sort of inconsistent with keir starmer's
6: as you said earlier sort of statesman-like image well i'm not sure the blancmange pm is very starmer um, and pull the other one doesn't <laughs> sound very keir starmer either but he's got a lot better in recent weeks what they've done quite well in recent weeks is find an issue that the public is broadly sympathetic with them on, uh, and find a way of attacking the prime minister personally about it, be it you know his schooling or um, you know uh, what he does with his tax affairs, um, how wealthy he is, all of that. Um, um, that's worked quite well for them, and I think this sharper Starmer, um is now causing uh, Sunak quite a bit of difficulty um, every week. Um, and I'm you know I'm all in favour of people coming up with lines that help you know a grown up argument cut through to the public um we'll have to see whether uh, the Blamond pm wobbling is is one that um comes back like captain hindsight all these other uh, phrases we hear at, at pmqs but um you know they're trying and as you say that you know they've got a they've got a much better operation now and and starmer has shown the humility to sort of accept that he was a bit boring and that he ought to try and liven things up a bit. Labour fighting
3: 30, Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson uh, would be proud, I'm sure. Let's go to Keir Starmer's third question then.
7: Mr Speaker, he's forgotten. Last week, last week I offered him Labour votes to pass these housing targets because this is bigger than politics. The former housing secretary on their side said scrapping mandatory targets would, this is his words from their side of the House, be a colossal failure of political leadership. No wonder he doesn't want to fight the next election, Mr Speaker. The author of the manifesto that they all stood on said it would cut building by 40%, perhaps even more. Why would he rather cripple house building than work
1: with us to get those targets through, yeah, yeah. M- m- Mr. Speaker, we're, we're not going to work with the Labour Party on housing. You know why? We'll have a look at their record on housing. In, in London, in London, the form, in London, the former Conservative mayor in five years built sixty thousand affordable homes. The current Labour mayor, half of that amount. In Wales, in Wales, we want to build twelve thousand homes. What are Labour delivering? Half of that, Mr Speaker. The Labour Party talks, the Conservatives deliver.
3: Well, you've got Keir Starmer there, Tim Shipman, posing himself as the man with all the authority as you know he, the real prime minister as it were you know offering beneficently to lend the tories votes really trying to hammer home this idea that rishi sunak is a, is a man in office but not in power
6: yeah that's right and you know of course the one thing that makes a tory prime minister look even weaker than doing u turns because of his own mp's of course is relying on labor votes to pass legislation in the house of commons so um, starmer in the previous question said you know was it worth it well from sunak's point of view it probably was worth it because he's still alive and he's not had a humiliating defeat in the chamber, and um, it's uh, you know he's living to fight another day. And right now, that's uh, the only plan really is to get into the new year and then hope that the economy turns and that um, by the next budget in March they've got something a bit more constructive to say. That's the best
3: they can hope for. Living, living hour to hour, even mere weeks into his premiership. Right, question number four from Starmer Then.
7: Mr Speaker, as ever, too weak to stand up to his own side on behalf of the country. Mr Speaker, I, I noticed there was another U-turn last night, this time on wind farms. I, I actually, I agree with that one, but is there no issue on which he won't give in to his backbenchers? Now, Mr Speaker, how did his colleague, Baroness Mohn, end up with nearly £30 million of taxpayers' money
1: in her bank account? Yeah. Oh. M- M- Mr. Speaker, let me say, l- like everyone else, I was absolutely shocked to read about the allegations. It's absolutely right. Oh. Uh, it's, it's, abso- it's absolutely right that she is no longer attending the House of Lords and therefore no longer has the Conservative whip. The- Again, I, the one thing we know about the honourable gentleman—he is a lawyer. He should know there's a process in place. It's right that that process concludes. I hope that it's resolved promptly. But I say one thing, Mr. Speaker, because I tell him—we mentioned—I tell him what is weak. I tell him what is weak is not being able to. I'll tell him, and that's not being able to stand up to people. Just—I know he's taken some advice from Gordon Brown lately. <laughs> Why doesn't, why doesn't he listen to a former minister in Gordon Brown's government who just said, why does the Labour Party refuse to stand up for workers in businesses like pubs and restaurants who will lose business as a result of the train strikes? Labour should stand up for working people. If he's strong, that's what he should
3: do. Not entirely sure who that former minister is unless uh,
6: Rishi Sunak has uh, started lobby reporting and is quoting someone off the record. Uh, I'm not sure either. And normally, um, you know, we can uh, rely on uh, someone telling us. Um, Very embarrassing. But that was a very odd pivot, wasn't it, from from (laughs) Sunak? Ah, Gordon Brown. And then someone who used to work for (laughs) Gordon Brown in some capacity um, says this. Well, you did suggest he was going to throw the unions back at... Yeah. Keir Starmer,
3: but I didn't expect him to do it quite so ineptly.
6: No, it was like one of those tennis shots where you sort of try and hoik it back between your own legs and end <laughs> up falling in a heap on the floor. Um, I don't think that uh, that quite got us there, did it? Um, yeah. Uh, also, Keir Starmer's line of questioning about wind farms.
3: I mean, you know, obviously it's another U-turn, it's not great for Rishi doing that, but it's harder to land... A blow if you open with. I'm disgusted I, that you're U-turn you on I've thing thing with. I agree with. How yeah. dare you, how dare you, you're such a disgrace. Yes,
6: so I mean I think it was a... That, all in all, question four on both sides, I think we'll probably quietly consign that one to the... To the, to the dustbin of to history. The bucket, yeah, not yes.
3: not not a not the most storied about changes. It's interesting though, um, Rishi Sunak clearly thinks this union thing can hurt Keir Starmer. It's interesting, I was speaking to one of Keir Starmer's uh, senior aides yesterday, who said Labour want to be in the position where um, three things are laughable. The first is uh, the first being um, the idea that Jeremy Corbyn is coming back. Uh, that they're in the pocket of the unions and that they're in the pocket of Nicola Sturgeon. I think the the Corbyn attack line is starting to become laughable uh, yeah. now. The union the union one. They're sort of starting to neutralise, but they're still vulnerable. I think, particularly if you've got Labour ministers, Labour shadow ministers going on the picket lines. And uh, as for Nicola Sturgeon, well, that's a that's a question for another day. Uh, but do you think um, that packs the punch it used to? The uh, the attack on Keir Starmer as a as a puppet of
6: the unions. Well, it doesn't pack the punch it packed under some previous leaders when they were obviously more um, dependent on them, um, uh, both for money and also for sort of policy ideas and influence. Um, and Starmer has you know uh, done a reasonably effective job in the first phase of his leadership of getting control of the party apparatus and 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 uh, they've also you know got a few decent results in some of these union elections some of the leaderships are a bit less uh, militant than they used to be and um you know Stammer has also broadened out the financial base of the labor party pretty effectively we've seen a lot of stories about some donors returning others uh, pivoting from the tories to labor um uh, uh, family of Lord Sainsbury, who famously gave lots of money to Tony Blair, is back in business and Mm. giving money to Labour. And inherently, that means they're less reliant on money from Unite and the GMB and and all the other affiliated unions. Um, But it's never going to be a charge that doesn't have some Some uh, potency. potency.
3: Well, lots of you getting involved on our YouTube channel. Remember, don't just settle for listening to us. You can watch us live on the Times Radio YouTube channel. I have to say, Rish Sunak, not really impressing today. Uh, Mike Griffiths says, after the Johnson era, it's a bit rich for the Tories to accuse Labour of personality politics. Uh, Starmer is deplorable on account of resorting to personality politics, uh, Sunak says, and then the PM thereupon engaged in it himself, uh, says... Uh Dave says Sunak was completely floored by the Moan question. Let's just return to that briefly. Uh, Labour have been going uh, big on this, this story about um, uh, Baroness Moan, the former lingerie tycoon turned Tory peer, uh, allegedly being linked to uh, a, 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 a PPE company that uh, made hundreds of millions during the pandemic and has since uh, took that leave of absence from the House of Lords. Obviously, in doing so, she's given Rich Sunak a ready-made reply. You can say, well, she doesn't have the Tory option on the House of Lords um,
6: nothing to see here.
3: But do you think this story still has legs? Do you think it could still damage uh, Rishi Sunak?
6: I think conceptually it's a problem for the Tories. I mean, uh, in focus groups I've sat in since the pandemic, that whole sense of they gave a load of money to their mates to buy stuff, um, that does linger. I think most of the public gives the government the benefit of the doubt on the pandemic, thinks, yes, they were just trying to do everything as quickly as they could to try and help. But for people who are you know, like to smell political conspiracy and uh, corruption at every turn. Uh, There's certainly several uh, examples that um, uh, land home and and with a certain sort of voter, um, that idea has never really gone away. And I think... um, know, this is potentially damaging. It's a little bit surprising that Starmer didn't do something with this last week. In fact, we had, um, you know, the lads on from uh, the political club at school and they Mm. were all predicting ahead of it that surely Moan was the obvious terrain for Starmer and he went with economic stuff instead. But, you know, they're, they're they're making the most of it again this week.
3: Well, never underestimate Keir Starmer's uh, ability to miss the obvious in these sessions. And remember, want to hear from you, get involved in YouTube, text too. Andrea Wood uh, has just texted in to say, it would be nice if anyone in Parliament were constructive. Pathetic, slanging matches. Let's see if we get anything constructive out of Keir Starmer's fifth question.
7: Mr Speaker, it, it may not seem like it, but he's supposed to be the Prime Minister. This morning, this morning... His Transport Secretary said that his flagship legislation on strikes—this is what he said this morning, his Transport secretary might want to listen to this—is clearly not going to help with the industrial action we're facing. He should stop grandstanding, stop sitting on his hands, get round the table and resolve these issues. And everyone can see what's happening here. A Tory politician got their hands on hundreds of millions in taxpayers' money and then provided Duff PPE and he says he's shocked. Yeah. He was the Chancellor. Yeah. He, he signed the cheques. Yeah. How much
1: is he going to get back? Yeah. The, mis, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker. It's right that he brought up legislation with regard to strikes, and I'm very happy to address it, actually. So hard-working families right now in this country are facing challenges. The government has been reasonable. It's accepted the recommendations of an independent pay body, giving pay rises in many cases higher than the private sector. But if the union leaders continue to be unreasonable, then it is my duty to take action to protect the lives and livelihoods of the British public. And that's why, Mr Speaker, since I became Prime Minister, I have been working for new, tough laws to protect people from this disruption. That's the legislation he's asking about. Will he now confirm that he'll stand up for working people and that he and his party will back that legislation?
3: So what Rishi like is talking about there, Tim, is uh, minimum service laws that yep. would require um, unions... Uh, involved in frontline public services, be those railways, um, the healthcare, uh the healthcare sector to provide a minimum level of service even in the event of a strike it 's the norm across europe uh, weirdly it hasn 't been introduced here despite twelve years of Tory government
6: uh, no that 's um, uh, possibly because every time they 've looked like doing it um, they 've had a big old fight about it. Um, the unions here are quite effective at. Digging in on these things. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those ones where if you asked 100 members of the public, I thought 70 of them would think it was pretty reasonable. Um, But that doesn't mean it's any simpler to get it through the House of Commons. Um, And it doesn't mean that you're going to get the Labour Party supporting it. Um, So, you know, it gives... uh, it gives sunak a little bit of something to go on but starmer's obviously got something there and in his research lot of uh, delivered him some quotes from mark harper this morning effectively saying well, of course the legislation doesn't come in for a bit so it's not going to help us with these strikes mm. um uh which um gives him a rhetorical point um you know i mean i'm not sure we're getting anywhere here really are we it's uh, it's
3: no, i mean there was there was very little attempt from Rishi Sunak out there to even acknowledge the actual question
6: Keir starmer no. asked no, He's got his pre- prepared response, and you know, it's sort of as good as far as it goes. Um, I thought you know, Starmer saying, You know, you, you're the chancellor, you sign the checks. Um, I mean, of course, there are no checks, but <laughs> um, it's uh, it's another one where at least Sunak has some tangential involvement in the issue, is and he thing? personally, you know, has has something to do with this. It's not just, um, uh, on Michelle Moan, it's not just that it's uh, uh you know, something from one leader attacking another, it's another thing where Sunak was at least on the face of it, part of the thing. Well, and given that... Rishi Sunak, the one thing that gives um,
3: the Tories a bit of hope and the one thing that still uh, spooks uh, people close to Keir Starmer, is that Rishi Sunak's personal numbers, his polling numbers, despite his party being the doldrums, are quite good. Yeah. And a lot of that is a hangover from people who remember him as the Chancellor during Covid, who um, kept the economy ticking over, who kept their um, paid their mortgages, paid their furlough. Um, so if Labour are going to ever land a blow on Rishi Sunak or ever going to drag him down to the level of popularity of his party, they, they're going to have to do something to to make people reassess that as chancellor. And the Michelle Moen story and others are, are perhaps in that category, aren't they?
6: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think, the, you know, I mean, you talked about this being a sort of, you know, you know uh, people talking about pathetic slanging matches. I mean, to a degree, that's what PMQs always is. <laughs> Sometimes you feel you get some light and you really learn something about uh, an issue or where one or other of the leaders is coming from on something. This feels like a fairly arid exchange of... Uh, fairly pre-prepared lines. The thing I find a little bit interesting, just to reflect on what you just said, is that while Sunak's backbenchers are pretty fractious, um, they're pretty unmanageable, they look like they're prepared to rebel about almost anything, he's still getting quite a lot of noise behind him in the chamber. There's Mm. not a sort of, you know, when when he does one of his... What you and I might, as political observers, think is a fairly hackneyed kind of response. He's still getting he still more, more, more guy. from his from his backbenchers. The real, the noise you don't want is the tumbleweed silence, mm. and that's what Theresa May had at the end. It's what Boris Johnson had at the end. That's what Liz Truss said it, the whole uh, whole time. Yes, um, and that's not where he is at the moment. So, while you know, I think you know, a lot of the audience is saying they're not impressed. Um, I'm not sure we're that impressed. Um, he is you know, keeping his um, nostrils just above the waves at the moment. Well, let's see if
3: he is waving or drowning in Keir Starmer's sixth and final question.
7: Mr Speaker, he's he's obviously not heard what his Transport Secretary said about that legislation this morning. And it's obvious why they're so opposed to Labour's plans to clean up Westminster. They all voted for tax rises for working people, while one of their unelected peers pocketed millions flogging yeah. dodgy PPE. Should be ashamed. Now, Mr. Speaker, I-, I want to raise something that is worrying parents across the country. Mm. Our hearts, our hearts, go out to the families of the children who've tragically died from the outbreak of Strep A in recent weeks. I'm very happy to work with the Government on this. So can he take the opportunity to update the country on the measures the country is taking to keep children safe this winter?
1: Well Mr Speaker my thoughts were of course with the families of the children who have sadly lost. Their lives. We are seeing a higher number of cases from Strep A this year compared to usual. Uh, what I can say is that the NHS, who I have sat down to talk about this, are working very hard to make sure parents are aware of the symptoms that they should be looking out to, because this can be treated appropriately with uh, antibiotics. There are no current shortages of drugs available to treat this, and there are well-established procedures in place to ensure that that remains uh, the case. And the UK SHA are monitoring the situation uh, at pace, and what they have confirmed is that there is, this is not a new strain of strep A, so people should be reassured about that. There is no reason to believe that it's become more lethal or more resistant to antibiotics, so the most important thing for parents to do is look out for the symptoms and get the treatment that is available for them.
3: So, my note, to end on then, Tim Shipman, how worried are ministers about this, um, this strep A outbreak, do you think?
6: Well, I think um, when anything that involves kids has the potential to um, be quite a difficult issue. It's obviously upsetting for people who've got children. Um, you know, every time my daughter coughs, we're getting the old iPhone out with the uh, with the torch and peering down her throat and seeing what's what. There's a lot of people doing that at the mm-hmm. moment. Um, the politics of it are that, you know, I mean, it sounds like, Starmer doesn't particularly want to make it a party political issue. Um, If there's things that need doing, it sounds like there'd be Labour votes to achieve that. Um, The danger for the government is that it highlights some of the problems that are already there in the NHS in terms of, uh, you know, a lot of people are finding it very difficult to get a GP appointment. Um, Some of them are then going to A&E, which is even more overloaded than usual. Um, and, and then ambulance know, strikes as well. Yeah, and the whole system's creaking, uh, even without the strikes. And um, this is the kind of thing, you know, in a highly sort of emotive area um, that has the power to bring all that home a little bit to people who don't necessarily spend a lot of time uh, thinking about healthcare. Um and it's, you know, potentially, you know, politically problematic. And if people start saying children are dying because of shortages, that's when it becomes pretty politically toxic. We're not there yet. Um, And I think, you know, it sounds like, at least in the realms where the the drugs do work Mm. um, and um, it's not some lethal new strain and all the rest of it, Um, but there's certainly... It's it's a new um, problem um, that has the power to highlight... Old problems.
3: We've already had Richard Sunak and Keir Starmer so far, so let's take a look at the best of the rest. First, we're going to go to Stephen Flynn, who, in case you didn't know, is the new leader of the SNP at Westminster.
0: Thank, thank you, Mr. Speaker. I wish to begin by paying tribute to my friend and colleague, the Right Honourable Member for Ross, Sky, and Lochaber, who has served us with diligence and duty for the last five years. Mr Speaker, he is a giant of the Scottish independence (laughs) movement Mr Speaker, he's seen off, not one, not two but three consecutive Tory Prime Ministers indeed, he was on to his fourth in recent weeks and to that latest Prime Minister I have a very simple question what does he consider to be the greatest achievement of the Conservative Party in government since 2019 leaving the single market and customs union ending freedom of movement denying Scotland her democracy, or getting the Labour Party to agree with all of the above? <laughs> Mr Speaker, can I start by offering my genuine and warm, heartfelt
1: best wishes to the Right Honourable Member for roskine know I know the whole House will miss his weekly contributions. <laughs> And, may, and may, I, may I also congratulate or join the First Minister in congratulating the Honourable Gentleman on his appointment as a Westminster leader of the SNP. I look forward to a constructive debate uh, with him across the dispatch box. And, Mr Speaker, the answer to this question is actually very simple. The things that we are most proud of in the last couple of years is making sure that we protected this country through the pandemic yeah. with, with furlough and with the fastest vaccine rollout. Yeah.
3: Well, Stephen Flynn, there very different style for me in Blackford, who was uh, very uh, verbose. Uh, some would say a bit prolix, uh, prone to uh, liking the sound of his own voice. That was short, sharp, and quite aggressive from Stephen Flynn. There also yes. lavishing his predecessor
6: with uh, with praise, having you know stuck the stiletto into his back. Almost too much praise, wasn't it? A giant of Scottish independence, which for a humble crofter is quite the, is quite, <laughs> quite the accolade. It's quite the accolade. And Flynn, yes, I mean, I'm, you know, I suspect most of our um, uh, viewers and listeners are not uh, familiar with Flynn. He looks a little bit like uh, Dominic Cummings' slightly more aggressive <laughs> younger brother, doesn't he? Um, head um, shorn to the to the roots and uh, yeah. I mean, I, it was a clever little sort of punchy, aggressive question. I think it would have been even better if he'd just said what was the greatest ch- and, and rather do the sort of little bit of extra foldable. Multiple role, choice. Multiple choice. Just because that's the sort of question that can unseat a Prime Minister. I think... Um, Someone stood up once and asked Tony Blair what his political philosophy was, and he had literally no idea how to answer <laughs> uh, that question. Flailed around. Um, Sunak went for the pandemic. Interesting. I thought he might say jobs and preserving jobs was the the one thing that you know that he was proudest of. Um, but he went for his. It's, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier, the public still remember him um, and his role in furlough. The guy who sells me coffee on the station platform is still very grateful to Rishi Sunak for. Um, keeping him paid during the pandemic um and there's a lot of people around like that so he decided to attach himself to that rather than the sort of purer economics of of unemployment you know not being what it might have been and um, mm. uh, you know we've got bad inflation we've got bad growth um but but job numbers are more buoyant than they were during margaret thatcher's recession or john major's recession and you know that's uh, Uh, one of the saving graces for the Tory party. Well,
3: let's see where Stephen Flynn goes next with his second question. Stephen Flynn, the new SNP's Westminster leader.
0: Mr Speaker, far be it for me to offer advice to a near billionaire, but he's going to have to up his game. And here's why, because in the last 15 minutes, a poll has landed which shows that support for Scottish independence has now hit 56%. And And support for the Scottish National Party sits north Of 50 per cent. So in that context, can I ask the Prime Minister, does he consider that increasing energy bills on households in energy-rich Scotland by a further £500 will cause those poll numbers to rise or to fall?
1: Mr Speaker, what we're delivering for households across the United Kingdom, including those in Scotland, is £55 billion of support with energy bills. It will save a typical homeowner about 900 billion. Under their bills this winter, with extra support for the most vulnerable, and that is, Mr. Speaker, an example of the United Kingdom and the Union delivering for people in Scotland.
0: You Thank
3: wonder, you. Uh, Tim Shipman, whether that was as much of a message for Nicola Sturgeon as it was uh, as it was Rishi Sunak. You know that very telling message about independence and if, if this sort of coup in the Westminster group of the SNP shows anything is that there's a bit of a bit of internal tension in the SNP over the first minister and her priorities and her handling of all these
6: constitutional debates well Flynn's been put there because he wants to get aggressive and wants to get stuck in and he wants to get on with it and um uh, you know he has that demeanor doesn't mm. he I mean it was pretty punchy stuff he looks um keen and aggressive and um you know i think we're going to have quite a bit of fun with him but as you say um you know uh 56% for independence um smp north of 50% well you know if the smp can get north of 50% in the general election in scotland then um nicola sturgeon will say that that is effectively a referendum by the back door um i think you know if you pick a poll showing that uh, independence is supported by 56. There'll be a long, one along next week showing that it's 46. Uh, that's ten, tended to be how things have gone. And the, the key most, uh, number there is the number of people who actually want a referendum rather than the people, how people might who vote in, in it. in principle, might vote yeah. if there's a referendum that isn't going to happen anytime soon. Because a lot of people would vote for independence, but they really don't want the hassle of all that of in all their that. lives again. Certainly um, not
3: now. Anyway, one final backbench question before I let you go, Tim. This is the Conservative MP, Connor Burns.
7: Mr. Mr Speaker, can I thank you and colleagues across the House for your kindness and encouragement in recent weeks. Can I ask my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, this afternoon to recommit the Government he leads to our ambition of levelling up communities in every part of our great United Kingdom. And to that end, could I invite my right honourable friend to come and visit my Bournemouth West constituency and see the latest school rebuild, the multi-million pound rebuild of the Oak Academy, which will stand as a lasting tribute of opportunity to the people I have the privilege of serving
1: in this House.
4: Yeah.
1: Well, Mr Speaker, can I say that it's very nice to hear from my right honourable friend... Today and, and he's absolutely right. There is no better way to spread opportunity around the country than by investing in our children's future. Uh, I'm absolutely delighted that Oak Academy, in his constituency, is benefiting from our school rebuilding programme. And I will certainly ask my office to keep
3: his kind invitation in mind.
0: Well,
3: um, just to explain some context there for listeners, the prolonged cheering for Connor Burns there, big ally of Boris Johnson... Uh, relates to his having just received the Conservative whip back and having been cleared by an internal Conservative Party investigation into an allegation uh, of sexual misconduct, uh, which he always denied uh, and now has now been cleared of uh, at Conservative Party uh, conference. He's just received the whip back. Um, hence the somewhat pointed question and the uh the congratulations from Rishi Sunak or the warm response from Rishi Sunak and uh the uh, very uh, very loaded invitation for the prime minister to uh come down to bournemouth and effectively uh, uh apologize for
6: his treatment uh, yes um which got a sort of, well, we'll think about it. Let's, uh, my office can have a think about it. Um, I mean, what Conor Burns would really like is his government job back, um, which he was he sacked was, as a trade minister. He was sacked as a trade minister by Liz Truss's um, uh, chief whip, um, uh, Wendy Morton, who has herself long since moved on. And, um, you know, I think uh, a lot of his colleagues felt that he was treated pretty badly. Um, uh, and Sunak is not a particularly an ally of Connor Burns, um, uh, and there's a lot of there was a, as you say uh, in what sounded like a fairly banal exchange there was quite a lot going on there uh, in terms of subtext. Um, so yeah, I mean. Uh, Burns got a bigger cheer than Sunak has managed today um, and that will tell you something about uh, the mood on the backbenchers. Indeed, and it might tell us about
3: what's going to happen next time a, a junior ministerial job becomes vacant. That's all we got time for on today's edition of the Breadbox podcast. I'm here for the rest of the week, so don't go anywhere. And remember, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from.